This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes is an old-time radio show which aired in the States from 1939 to 1950. Now, originally, the show starred Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes and Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson. Together, they starred in 220 episodes, which aired weekly on Mondays from 8.30 to 9 p.m. Basil Rathbone was a South African-born English actor who rose to prominence in the United Kingdom as a Shakespearean stage actor. He went on to appear in more than 70 films, primarily costume dramas, swashbucklers, and occasionally horror films. His most famous role, however, was that of Sherlock Holmes in 14 Hollywood films made between 1939 and 1946 and in a radio series. His later career included roles on Broadway as well as a, a film and television work. He received a Tony Award in 1948 as Best Actor in a Play, and he was nominated for two Academy Awards and won three stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Now, I found this bit of history very interesting. At the end of 1915, Rathbone was called up into the British Army as a private with the London Scottish Regiment. His brother John was killed in action on June 4th of 1918, and it was after this that Rathbone convinced his superiors to allow him to scout enemy positions during daylight rather than at night, as was the usual practice to minimize the chance of detection. Rathbone described it this way, Camouflage suits had been made for us to resemble trees. On our heads were wreaths of freshly plucked foliage. Our faces and hands were blackened with burnt cork. Now, as a result of these highly dangerous daylight reconnaissance patrols in September of 1918, he was awarded the Military Cross for Conspicuous Daring and Resource on Patrol. So let's join this real-life hero as he puts on the deerstalker hat and cloak worn by that famous detective, Sherlock Holmes. Petri Wine brings you... Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invites you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another exciting adventure he shared with his good friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. And now it's time to keep the weekly appointment with our good friend, Dr. Watson. How are you this evening, Doctor? I never felt better, thank you, Mr. Bartell. Draw up your usual chair and make yourself comfortable. Thanks. That's it. Oh, I see you've had the old tin dispatch box out again. I suppose you've been going through your notes on tonight's new Sherlock Holmes adventure? Yes, Mr. Bartell, and I think you'll find it as pretty a little problem as we ever encountered. The story began in 1887, 
A very busy year for us, my boy. It was the same year that Holmes solved the case of the Amateur Mendicant Society, who held their meetings in a luxuriously furnished vault below a furniture warehouse. Oh, I remember that story, Doctor. And uh, wasn't 87 the year you both escaped from death in the Paradol Chamber? It was indeed. You've got a very good memory, Mr. Bartell. The story I'm going to tell you tonight topped off this unusually exciting year. It was late in October, and the equinoctial gales had set in with exceptional violence. All day the wind had howled, and the rain had beaten against the windows of our Baker Street lodgings. Finally, it was uh, midnight, as far as I remember. The storm grew higher and louder, and the wind in the chimney sobbed like a child. Suddenly... Much to our surprise, the doorbell jangled, and a few moments later, our midnight visitor stood before us. He was a man of about 45, and as he looked about him anxiously in the glare of the lamp, I could see that his face was pale and that his eyes heavy, like those of a man who was weighed down with some great anxiety. And yet when he spoke, his tone was businesslike and almost aggressive. I've come to you for advice, Mr. Holmes. That's easily obtained. And help. That is not... Always so easy. Now, help the gentleman off his coat, will you, Watson? Here you are, sir. Let me hang it up for you. Thank you, sir. I heard of you, Mr. Holmes, from Major Prendergast. Oh, yes. He said that you could solve anything. I'm afraid he said too much. But you've never been beaten. I've been beaten four times, sir. Three times by men and once by a woman. But supposing you sit down and introduce yourself. Uh, My friend's name is Watson, Dr. Watson. How do you do, sir? How do you do, Doctor? My name is Lovelace, Edmund Lovelace. And what brings you... Me at this hour of the night, Mr. Lovelace. I'm in terrible trouble, Mr. Holmes. You don't know anything about me, but if you'll accept my case, you can save four lives. I wouldn't say that I know nothing about you, sir. No, it's true that I know little beyond the somewhat obvious fact that, uh, well, you're single, <clears throat> that you keep a dog, but not a manservant, and that you are much preoccupied with your business, which I take to be some form of insurance. Oh, come, <laughs> come, come, come. Oh, now, what is this? Well, I, magic. I'll wager that my friend's right, though, isn't he, Mr. Lovelace? Perfectly. But I'll be hanged if I can see how he knows it. It's a practical application of logic, sir. The briefcase that you carry might at first indicate a barrister or some other professional man, but your brusque, business, business-like manner counteracts that suggestion. An insurance broker who must visit clients at odd hours is the likeliest man to combine that manner with a briefcase of midnight. But uh, <laughs> the wife and the manservant, uh, and the fact that I'm preoccupied with my business. Uh, your cufflinks don't match, sir. They each is from a different pair. That would suggest preoccupation, and it's a mistake that neither a wife nor a manservant would have allowed to pass. <laughs> yes, but how about the dog? Um... Oh, surely that's obvious, Watson. Well, I can't see it. I shall let you ponder on that matter while Mr. Lovelace tells us his problem. Mr. Holmes... Are you as interested in preventing a murder as in solving one? Well, naturally, I am, Mr. Lovelace. Even more so. But uh, uh, please tell me your story. I live with four cousins of mine in an old house in Camberwell. My grandfather left the house and a sizable fortune to the five of us on condition that we live together and maintain the family unity. It probably won't surprise you to know that we've grown to get pretty much on each other's nerves. Well, what happens if one of you dies, Mr. Lovelace? His share is divided among the others, Doctor. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. Well, the wonder to me is, sir, that... Uh... Not that a murder may take place, but uh, that it has not happened long ago. Who's responsible for the administration of the estate? My cousin, Gerald. He's much older than the rest of us, and he's a thoroughly unpleasant, cantankerous man. He gets an extra share in the estate as administrator, and in consequence, he doesn't work. We feel, of course, that he lives off us, and we're continually quarrelling with him about it. Mm, Sounds Mm. like a jolly household, I must say. There's going to be trouble, Mr. Holmes, I know it. Gerald hates us, and he's jealous of our share in the estate. You spoke of preventing murder just now. 
Uh, yet I can see that you've selected your cousin Gerald as the potential murderer. Am I right? Yes, you are. Mm-hmm. But don't think it's personal prejudice that makes me suspect him. I have good reason for doing so. Uh, what reason? This evening, just before dinner, I helped Gerald off with his top coat and went to hang it up for him. As I did so, I heard a strange metallic clink in one of his pockets. I slipped my hand inside it and found a hypodermic syringe and a small pile of liquid. I opened the pile and smelled it. Gentlemen, it reeked of bitter almonds. Mr. Sarnard, eh? And what did you do? I thought of destroying it, but I realized that that would put him on his guard, so I replaced it in his pocket. Of course, I warned the others. And we decided that I'd come to you. I had to see a most important client tonight, or I'd have been here earlier. Yes, it seems odd that you didn't come directly to Mr. Holmes as soon as you'd made the discovery, Mr. Lovelace. After all, if a potential murderer is walking about with a pocket full of cyanide, I should have thought that that itself was more important than business. Well, I... uh... Yes, I... I suppose it might seem so to you, Doctor. That's the most interesting stick you carry, sir. May I examine it? Of course. Here. Oh, thank you. <laughs> now I see how you deduced that Mr. Lovelace had a dog, Holmes. There are the marks of the dog's teeth on the stick. Yes, my dear Watson, but these marks under scrutiny give us even more specific information. He's a large dog. You've had him for some years, Mr. Lovelace, and he's now old and feeble. Well, you're perfectly right, but I'll be hanged if I can see how you can tell that from looking at a walking stick. <laughs> this stick is covered with teeth marks, therefore it has been carried many times by the dog. Now it's... Uh, a heavy stick, so only a large dog could have carried it. And the teeth marks also indicate a large jaw. The older marks are deep sunk. Look here. The fresh ones, where the wood is not yet darkened, are shallow. Yes, it's obvious that the jaws are losing their strength. That's very clever of you, Mr. Holmes, but I don't see what it has to do with the case in hand. Oh, neither do I, Holmes. I must confess. No, surely it tells us that your story, Mr. Lovelace, may bear a less terrifying implication than you think. On the other hand... Its implication may be even more terrifying. Oh, it's late at night. I feel that any further delay in this matter would be extremely dangerous. I suggest that we get a cab and come to your house in Camberwell at once. Alice, Randolph, I'm glad you're still up. I was able to persuade Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson to come back with me. Gentlemen, this is my cousin, Alice Harley. How do you do? How do you do, Miss Harley? How do you do? And my cousin, Randolph Lovelace. How do you do? How do you do, sir? How do you do, Mr. Lovelace? I've told him about the whole business, Randolph, so we can all speak perfectly freely. Let's begin by sitting down, shall we? Randolph and I have just finished a little cold supper. We've been to the theatre tonight. Well, Mr. Holmes, I... I suppose Edmund told you about finding the hypodermic syringe. And the cyanide in Gerald's coat pocket. Yes, indeed. May I ask where your cousin uh, Gerald Lovelace is now? We left the house at seven, but I imagine Gerald went upstairs at eight as usual, didn't he, Edmund? On the stroke of eight, Alice. He's very fixed in his habits, Mr. Holmes. He goes up to his room every night at eight. There he reads or works on his accounts and eventually goes to bed any time between ten and one. Well, he might still be up. I should like to speak to him a little later. In the meanwhile, may I ask you two young people, tell me quite honestly your feelings about your cousin, Gerald? And you might as well be frank. I've kept nothing back. All right. Randolph and I hate him. First of all, we're sure he's jealous of our shares in the estate, and and then we... Alice and I want to get married, Mr. Holmes, and Gerald won't hear of it. But you're your cousins, aren't you? Only second cousins, Dr. Watson. Gerald is dreadfully conventional. He's threatened us that if we do get married, he'll go to court and try to have our shares in the estate annulled. And from the way the will is worded, I wouldn't be surprised if he could do it. So you can see why we have no great love for him and why we're afraid of him. He sounds an extremely unpleasant person to me. 
You mentioned there were five cousins in the house. Three of you are here. Mr. Gerald Lovelace is upstairs. Who and uh, where is the fifth cousin? The fifth cousin is my brother, Gilly. He's something of a tragedy, I'm afraid. You see, Gilly's 20, but he he never developed mentally beyond the, the age of eight. He had a bad fall in the hunting field when he was a kid. He's been like this ever since. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, sir. But he's the dearest, most gentle boy you've ever met. And, incidentally, the one person in this house who doesn't hate Gerald. The poor fellow doesn't understand the conditions of the will, I suppose. No. But if he did, I don't think it'd make any difference. I swear that Gilly loves every living thing, especially Gladstone. Gladstone is the name of his dog. His dog? Yes. The dog may be the key to this whole matter. The dog? What makes you say that, Holmes? When a man brings a quick and painless poison home to a household containing an old and feeble dog, it's more than possible that he has obtained that poison quite legitimately to give the dog a merciful death. To kill Gladstone? Oh, no! After all, Alice, dear, he is old and almost blind But, now. Mr. Holmes, if you think Gerald brought home the poison to put Gladstone out of the way, well, and I admit it sounds perfectly logical, what made you decide to come here tonight? Because I dare not even guess... What you may have done by intruding the thought of murder in this situation. Uh, where is your brother, Gilly? In his room upstairs, asleep. I wonder if we might go up to him. I should like to talk to him, if you don't mind. And after that, I... I want a few words with your cousin, Gerald Lovelace. Sleep, Mr. Helms. Yes, with a dog in his arm. Mm. I'm afraid we'll have to waken him. Gilly? Gilly? That's all right, Gladstone. We're not going to hurt him. Gilly? Hmm? Who, who, who is it? Oh, hello, Alice. Who, who are these men? They've come to take Gladstone away. Oh, no, Gilly, we, we haven't. Oh, of course not, Gilly. We've just come to admire him. Your brother's been telling us what a fine dog he is. Oh, that's different. He... Isn't he beautiful? I... I just had such a wonderful dream about him. Oh, such a wonderful dream. What was it, Gilly? Hmm? Well, he, he, he was all young again. Just a puppy. He, he was chasing a rabbit across a cliff top. And, and... And I was running with him. Oh, Glaston looked so beautiful. Didn't you, old boy? <laughs> of course you did. And... And, you know, the rabbit went down a hole and... And Gladstone went down after him. And I went down after Gladstone. And, and we all had tea with the rabbits. Huh. It was so funny. They all had little green hats on. Hats with, with feathers. I wanted Gladstone to try one on, but... Well, he wouldn't. <laughs> so sleepy. Come on, Gladstone. Let's go back to the tea party. Poor kid. Hmm. His world may be a great deal more pleasant than ours, Watson. That's what I'd like to think, Mr. Holmes. Now I'd like to have a few words with your cousin, Gerald. His room's at the end of this corridor. I'm afraid Gilly wasn't much help to you, Mr. Holmes. On the contrary, young lady. He told me exactly what I wanted to know. Here we are. This is Gerald's room. There's no light under the door. He must have gone to sleep. I'm afraid we must waken him, too. Heavy sleeper. But he isn't. He's a remarkably light one. Come on, let's go in. Strike a match, will you, old fellow? Sure. The gas mantle's at the head of his bed, Dr. Watson. Yeah. 
Well, he's lying on the outside of his bed. He must be... There's blood on the pillow. Great Scott Holmes, the back of his skull smashed in. He's been murdered. <gasps> oh, no! Horrible! Yes, Watson, but not by the blows on his head. Look here on the table by his bed. A hypodermic syringe and a broken file. Yes, a broken file. Reeking of bitter almonds. Poor devil. Well, I won't pretend I liked him. But what a ghastly way to die. All they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. So the scriptures say, Mr. Lovelace. The very suspicion of the killing has brought murder to pass. Well, it's too late to prevent it. Our job now is to find the killer and see that he's brought to justice. Well, Dr. Watson, so you found Gerald Lovelace dead in one of the bedrooms of the house in Camberwell... Uh, what did you do? Send for the police? Not at once, Mr. Bartell. Sherlock Holmes persuaded the remainder of the household to give him the opportunity of examining the scene of the crime carefully before the police were sent for. And so, a few minutes before one o'clock that October night, Holmes and I stood alone in the room of death. Turn the gas a little higher, will you, old chap? You know, Holmes, I think you should have sent for the police right away. In a case like this, Watson, I prefer to be my own police. And I have spun the web... They may take the flies, but not before. What are the results of your medical examination, old chap? Well, it's exactly as you reconstructed it, Holmes. He was first beaten on the head with that poker lying on the floor. Then he had the full file of cyanide injected into his left wrist. Can you estimate the time of death at all accurately? No, this room's confoundedly hot. He might have died any time from one to five hours ago. Yes. It's now one o'clock, and we know that he was alive at eight. Mr. Edmund Lovelace... Saw him leave for his room at that hour. Yes, if he was telling the truth. One thing we do know for a fact is that this man was murdered at the exact moment he was going to bed. He's wearing his nightgown and nightcap, but his bed has not been slept in. Well, isn't it possible that the murderer might have killed him shortly after eight and then dressed him in his night clothes to confuse us? No, my dear chap. You will notice that the hypodermic needle passed through the sleeve of his nightshirt. Here. Also, the nightcap is crushed and bloodstained from the blows of the poker. No, Gerald Lovelace had prepared for bed. Yes, with a glass of water on the night table and the, the prayer book and the watch. Yes, signs of a prosperous and meticulous man. Mm -hmm. Very fine gold watch and in excellent condition. Ah, uh -huh. there's the answer, Watson. What do you mean, there's the answer, Watson? I just wound this watch one turn and then it was fully wound. That provides us with a time schedule for our murder. Come on. We'll send a servant for the police, and while they're on the way, if you'll call everyone together, I should like to put a few more questions to this family. Before the police arrive, I should like to hear your statements again very carefully, if you don't mind. Mr. Edmund Lovelace... What were your exact movements tonight? I left here shortly before ten. From ten o'clock until the time I came to Baker Street, I was with my client. His name and address, please. Derek Waterlow, 39 Onslow Square, South Kensington. Thank you. Make a note of these, will you, Watson? Right, you are, Holmes. You, Miss Harley, and you, Mr. Randolph Lovelace, went to the theatre together. Can any independent witness testify as to your movements? Well, yes, Mr. Holmes. We went with friends, the Grant Moresby's. They live at the Clarendon Hotel loft, Charing Cross. What time did you leave this house? Well, it it was about a quarter to eight, wasn't it, Alice? Yes. 
And after the play, we went to the Café Royale for a little refreshment with our friends and then came back here. I see. At what time did you arrive back at this house? Just a few minutes before midnight. I remember the grandfather clock in the hall striking just as we went into the drawing room. And your brother Gilly, sir. I hate to waken him again. Have you any idea of his movements tonight? Well, he never goes out after dark, Mr. Mm -hmm. Holmes. But I spoke to the cook as we came in tonight. She says that he played cards with her until just after ten o'clock. He was fast asleep when I looked in on him shortly after midnight. Thank you. You've made a note of all these facts, Watson. Yes, Holmes, I got them all down. Good. Then let's be on our way to Baker Street. But the police, Mr. Holmes, they're on their way. I know. Uh, please give them my regards, will you? Apologize for my informality and tell them that I shall have the answer to this matter probably in a little over 24 hours. <laughs> Here it is, well after midnight. You haven't done a thing on the Camberwell case. No, but you have, old chap. You've checked on all the time alibis and found them valid. I'm much obliged to you. Yes, Inspector Lestrade was here tonight, you know, and he made some pretty caustic remarks, I can tell you. Oh, didn't you inform him that I'll uh, have the answer to the problem before many hours have passed? Uh, but you know, Lestrade, he wanted action. <laughs> he shall have it. Is the watch still running? Yes, another thing. What will Lestrade say when he finds that you took the... Dead man's what? I've no idea. Oh, why did you take it anywhere? You sound sleepy, old chap. I am confoundedly sleepy. Well, why don't you go to bed? What are you going to do? Continue my vigil with my pipe and the watch of a dead man. Watson! Watson, wake up! Uh, Five o'clock in the morning. Good Lord, what are you doing up at this hour? The watch has just stopped. I'm about to rewind it. What are you rewinding it for, Holmes? You waited over 24 hours for it to unwind. When I know how many turns it takes to wind it fully, I shall have the answer to the whole business. Ten. Eleven. You're being confoundedly mysterious, as usual. Fourteen. Fourteen turns, and the watch is fully wound. Get your clothes on, old chap. Where are we going on this hour? To the house in Camberwell. Now I know who murdered Gerald Lovelace. Mr. Edmund Lovelace, I'm glad you let us in. Please take us up to your young cousin's room at once. Really? What do you want with him? I'll explain in a moment. Please take us up to him. Of course, but... What brings you here at this hour of the morning? Mr. Holmes knows who murdered your cousin. Well, I'm glad to hear it. It's more than the police seem to know. They were here half the night cross-examining us. Here we are. I don't think we'll bother to knock. Billy. Billy? I'm awake. We heard you coming up the stairs, didn't we, Gladstone? It's the same man again. You're not going to take Gladstone away, are you? Please don't take him oh, away. Don't worry, Gilly. We're not going to touch him. Oh. It's all right, then. Oh, Gilly. Yes? You really love that dog, don't you? Of course I do. More than anything or, or anybody. I believe you'd even kill a man who tried to hurt Gladstone. Wouldn't you? Oh, yes, sir. I would. Billy! No. Great shutter. Gilly. I don't think you'd really kill a man. I don't think you could. <laughs> Couldn't I, though? How would you kill him? I'd hit him first. 
I'd take a poker and hit him on the head so he couldn't fight back. And then I'd take the nasty needle he told me he was going to stick in Gladstone and, and, and I'd fill it full of that water he showed me and I'd stick it in him. That's what I'd do. Then he'd be dead. And, and he couldn't hurt my Gladstone anymore. Not ever. <laughs> Let's leave him, shall we? Goodbye, Gilly. Pleasant dreams. Goodbye, sir. Good old Gladstone. You satisfied, sir? Yes. Poor Gilly. There's no doubt about it, of course. Well, can there be no one who described the murder to him, and yet he's just given an exact description of its method? What will what, uh, happen to him? They, they won't try him. No, no, no. no. A little pressure in the right places, and he'll be released to a private nursing home. I'll do everything I can, Mr. Lovelace. Thank you, Mr. Holmes. Thank you very much. <laughs> Well, Holmes, now that we're back in Baker Street and the whole pressing case is finished with, perhaps you'll tell me how you knew that Gilead committed the murder. Well, consider the uh, time schedules, old fellow. You checked the alibis of the other cousins and found them satisfactory. That meant that um, Alice Harley and uh, Randolph Lovelace could have committed the crime only at midnight. Edmund, only before ten. Gilly, only around eleven. You said that the uh, time of death could have been at any of those hours. Yes, I did. So how did you pin it down to, uh, to 11? The watch gave me the specific answer. When I picked it up, I unthink unthinkingly wound it. Made one turn and was then fully wound. Now, when does a methodical, precise man like Gerald Lovelace wind his watch? Just as he's going to bed. Exactly, old fellow. So that it was obvious that he was killed precisely one watch stem turn before I wound his watch. Now I'm beginning to see daylight, Holmes. So you let the watch run down. That's what I did. It took uh, 28 hours, from 1 o'clock the night before last until 5 this morning. Now, how many turns did it take to rewind it? 14, wasn't it? That's right. Therefore, one turn of the watch stem equaled two hours, proving that Gerald Lovelace had been murdered two hours before 1 o'clock at 11 p.m. When Gilly was the only one who could have done it. You know, Holmes, I still find it hard to believe that boy was capable of such a ghastly crime. He seems so gentle. Oh, he is, he is. Except when his beloved dog's life was at stake, probably out of some mistaken notion of kindness, Gerald Lovelace warned the boy of his intentions regarding the dog. Oh, it's a sad business, Watson, a sad business. I hate to think of that boy spending the rest of his life in a mental home. I have one prayer for his future. What's that, Holm? <clears throat> the dog Gladstone can't live very long. I pray that Gilly does not long outlive him. Doctor, that was a remarkable bit of deduction on the part of Mr. Holmes. Yes, extremely clever, wasn't it? Of course, if I may say so, I was of some small help myself. Small help? Why, Doctor, you practically solved the case by yourself. Oh, I wouldn't go as far as saying that. I'm... But, Doctor, you did check all the alibis, didn't you? Yes, I checked where each suspect was at various times. Yes, you checked time. And what's more important than time? Well, Why, I... Dr. Time is even vitally important when it comes to wine. I was wondering how you were going to bring that in. And one thing we do know, Petri took time to bring you good wine. So nobody can miss with Petri wine. It's just got to be good. You know, you can't be in the wine business as long as the Petri family without really learning all about the fine art of making wine. 
And don't forget, the Petri family has been making fine wine since way back in the 1800s. So, naturally, they've been able to hand on down from father to son, from father to son, the result of generations of experience at turning luscious, sun-ripened grapes into fragrant, delicious wine. No matter what type of wine you prefer, you'll like it more if it's a Petri wine, because Petri took time to bring you good wine. Well, Dr. Watson, what new Sherlock Holmes story do you plan to tell us next week? Well, now, next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm going to tell you a most unusual adventure that Holmes and I had when we were attending a performance at the Opera House in Rome. It concerns a famous singer who lost her voice, an understudy who was nearly lynched, and a murder that baffled the police. I call it the adventure of the terrifying cat. Well, that's a story we've got to hear. Thank you, Mr. Bartell. And before you go, I want to talk to our friends about their war bonds. You know, during the war, the best investment we could find was a United States war bond. And for my money, they're still a great investment. They're called United States savings bonds now, and only the name is changed. Savings bonds are sold in the same denominations and give you all the same advantages. And you can buy savings bonds at the same places at your bank or your post office or through the payroll savings plan. So invest all you can in United States savings bonds because you cannot find a better or a safer investment. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure was written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and was suggested by an incident in the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Five Orange Pips. Music is by Dean Fossler. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. Listen every Monday on most of these same stations at 8 o'clock to Michael Shane, followed immediately by Sherlock Holmes. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Stay tuned for Phil Harris and Alice Faye next on Theater of the Mind. You're listening to Theater of the Mind on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Time now for Phil Harris and Alice Faye. Good health to all from Rexall. It's the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show, presented by the makers of Rexall drug products and 10,000 independent Rexall family druggists. Good health to all from Rexall. And now your Rexall family druggist brings you the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show. Written by Ray Singer and Dick Chevrolet, with Elliot Lewis, Walter Tetley, Robert North, Janine Roos, Anne Whitfield, Walter Sharp and his music, yours truly, Bill Foreman, and starring Alice Faye and Phil Harris. Mr. Scott of Rexall has asked Phil to call the band together so that he might address them on a matter of importance. 
It must be very important, for Mr. Scott has been talking to the boys for over two hours. And as we look in, he is just finishing his speech. And in conclusion, gentlemen, I'd like to say that any resemblance between you and musicians is not only accidental, but downright malicious. <laughs> now then, are there any questions? Yeah, who are you? <laughs> I'm Mr. Scott. I represent the 10,000 independent Rexall dealers who pay for this program, and I'm here to see that you do your best for Rexall. Now, any other questions? What's a Rexall? <laughs> you must be pulling my leg. They can't be that stupid. They can't, too. Fellas, I'll explain what Rexall is. It's one of the world's foremost dispensers of pharmaceuticals. <laughs> Furthermore, that's, it's one... enough, that, that's enough, Harris. <laughs> Their little minds are loused up enough without your <laughs> I'll explain. <clears throat> a number of years ago, a group of druggists formed a company. They needed a title to identify themselves. And after many months, they came up with a grand old name. You know what they called it? starting to nudge me. <laughs> or, or, or better yet, Mrs. Harris, you talk to them. Please, Mr. Scott. You're asking me to lose my self-respect. They won't listen to anybody. If they won't listen to anybody, how does Mr. Harris keep them in line? Well, there's one way. He gets behind a curtain and says, Now hear this. Now hear this. This is Petrillo speaking. <laughs> that work? Well, that depends. If their union dues is paid, they ignore that, too. <laughs> Harris, as the leader of this band, it's up to you to see that they play properly, even if you have to teach them to read music. Them guys know how to read music. And I'll show you. Artie, read what's on your music stand. Abby rents $2 per day. <laughs> I mean the music. What does it say on the music? Shermer's book one for beginners. <laughs> oh, this is ridiculous. Isn't there anyone in this orchestra who knows what he's doing? Yes, there is. There is one man. My concert master, Mr. Remley. <laughs> Remley? Why that no talent slob? Wait a minute. <laughs> Now, just a minute, Mr. Scott. Don't knock Frankie. He's a pretty smart kid. He knows music. Oh, we'll soon find out. Remley, read that music you have in front of you. Say please. <laughs> All right, please read the music. What music? The sheet of paper you have in front of you. The one with the black dots. That's music? <laughs> I thought I was seeing spots in front of my eyes. <laughs> 
I've been having my glasses changed every week. Frankie, listen now. Will you cut out the clowning? Now, stop kidding. Mm-hmm. Now, read your guitar part just the way I wrote it for you. <laughs> Very well, maestro. It says when you hear noises coming from the other instruments, you'll know the number has started. <laughs> Don't do nothing until the trombone player hits you in the back of the head. <laughs> At which point, you count two, strum once, and put your guitar down before you get in trouble. <laughs> Harris, is that the way you write the music for them? Yeah, I do all my own arranging. <laughs> of course, it's a little tough with the violin section. They can't read English, and I gotta draw pictures. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> no wonder these musicians don't know anything. They've got a leader who knows even less. If you learn to read music and play yourself, maybe... Now, wait a minute. The... Just a minute, sir. I'm not only a fine instrumentalist, but I read music fluently. You do, eh? Let's see you read this. Very well. It's in the key of D-flat, which has five flats. It's in the Alla Brave tempo with a fermata on the end chord, finishing with a big piatti. <laughs> I'll be darned, he did it. I did? Oh, hey, Alice, look at me. I can read music. Frankie, did you hear that? I read the music. I read the music. Exhibitionist. <laughs> what are you trying to do, show the rest of us up? I'm not trying to show nobody up. I'm just gentlemen, trying to Gentlemen, gentlemen, them. please, please. I'm tired of all this bickering, and I want it to stop right now. Oh, please, Mrs. Scott, control yourself. And nobody asked you to butt in. Oh, oh, you old <laughs> Sorry, Mrs. Harris, I didn't mean to shout at you. What's wrong, Mr. Scott? You've been irritable all morning. Yeah, what's up, Scotty? I hate to see you this way. Your usual miserable self. <laughs> I apologize, Mrs. Harris. I'm all upset. It's a personal problem at home. Your wife can't stand you, huh? Frank. <laughs> How can you say a thing like that about such a fine person as Mr. Scott? If he's having any trouble at home, it's because he can't stand his wife. She's probably a nag who spends all his money, runs around with other... Wait a minute, wait a, wait a minute. I'm not having trouble with my wife. It's somebody else. Your girlfriend, huh? <laughs> oh, no, no, we got long splints. <laughs> I'm having trouble with my daughter, Marjorie. What's wrong? Well, as you know, she's only 17, and she's fallen in love with a man of 40. There's 23 years difference in their ages, and she wants to marry him. Well, what's so terrible about that? When I married Phil, there was 23 years difference in our ages. There was? Yeah. I happen to like older women. <laughs> well, I don't mind the difference in their ages so much. It's... Just that this fellow is a fortune hunter and he's after Marjorie's money. She's got money, huh? <laughs> I think I can help you, Mr. Scott. When this greedy fortune hunter comes around tomorrow and I tell him that Marjorie is already married. But she isn't married. We're eloping in the morning. <laughs> you wouldn't object to your daughter marrying me, would you? No. No, I wouldn't object. I'd just rather see her dead, that's all. <laughs> Who cares what you think? How 
have Marjorie meet me at her bank and we'll leave from there. <laughs> and you can send what we can't carry, so we'll... Oh, shut up! <laughs> I'm sorry I mentioned the whole thing. Goodbye. Well, what's he sore about? I had a solution to his problem, but he wouldn't give me a chance to tell him... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What are you doing, Artie? We're working up for Alice's song. All right, Alice, start singing. Sing what? What are you playing? What do you care? This fits with anything. <laughs> Put another nickel in, in the Nickelodeon. All I want is having you and music, music, music. I'd do anything for you, anything you'd want me to. All I want is kissing you and music, music, music. Closer, my dear, come closer. The nicest part of any melody is when you're dancing close to me. So put another nickel in, in the Nickelodeon. All I want is loving you and music, music, music. Put another nickel in, watch your favorite music begin. thinking about Mr. Scott's problem, you know, it's pretty serious, and I think we ought to help him. I know one thing. I wouldn't want my daughter married to a fortune hunter. Now you know how my father felt about you. <laughs> oh, honey, when I married you, I didn't know you had money. <laughs> By the time I found out, it was too late to back out, and I have suffered through it. <laughs> Say, Phil, I have an idea. All we have to do is make Marjorie forget this older man she's going with. I know that, but how? Well, let's find a young, handsome, clean-cut, typical American boy that she can fall in love with. Yeah, but after she falls in love with me, then what happens? <laughs> I wasn't talking about you. But, honey, will you listen to me? I'm the only one to make Margie forget this guy. If you remember, when I met her last year, she practically swooned over me. She had a terrific crush on me. That's right. The poor, weak-minded child did. <laughs> well, let's get 
get over to the house and you can talk to her. Hey, Curly, what makes you think you'll be able to get Margie to forget this other guy? Are you kidding? What, are you kidding? <laughs> no, kidding. I'm kidding. No, kidding. I'll make her forget him like that. Before I married Alice, she was going with Tyrone Power. Alice, tell him. How long did it take me to make you forget Tyrone? Ten years. <laughs> Ten? I've only known you eight years. You still have two years to go, dear. <laughs> and so, Mr. Scott, that's... Well, that's what we're doing over here. We want to help you. In short... As long as you're not capable of handling your family affairs yourself, we'll do it for you. That's very nice of you, Rimley. I appreciate your efforts in my behalf, and I'll thank you to keep your big fat nose out of my head. <laughs> Mr. Scott, uh, look, don't you want our help? Curly, don't ask him. Look, Scotty, we're going to help you. I don't want your help. You're going to get it whether you want it or not. Now get lost. We got work to do. Please, Frankie. Mr. Scott, very often children resent interference from their parents, and we thought, well, perhaps, you know, we might make Marjorie understand. That's right. Now, just let me talk to her for five minutes. That's all. Five little minutes. Now, where is she? She's in the den. Do you think you can influence her? Scotty, five minutes with me, and you won't be able to take her out of the house without a leash. <laughs> Excuse me. Oh, Filthy, here you go again, making a female happy. <laughs> Happens to be my business. <laughs> yes, sir, I hope seeing me again doesn't stagger the girl. <clears throat> Uh-oh, there she is. Uh, hiya, Margie. Hello, Curly. <laughs> <laughs> Got her on the ropes already. <laughs> I see, uh... You didn't forget me. How could I? I once had a terrific crush on you. Yeah, you did, didn't you? Wasn't I a silly little child? <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't say silly. Uh, discriminating is a better word. Perhaps, but at any rate, it's all over now. Is it, my dear? <laughs> I'm really in love. There's only one man for me, and that's Mr. Crail. <laughs> Crail? Is is his first name Clyde? Oh, <laughs> uh, Clyde Crail. How <laughs> you like that? I always thought that was the name I made up. <laughs> Say, Margie, but look, honey, after knowing me, how could you even look at anyone else? Because Mr. Crail is more romantic than you. Oh, pull yourself together, kid. This Crail is just a preliminary boy. With me, you is messing with a main event. <laughs> Mr. Harris, I know you were quite a ladies' man in your day. <laughs> what do you mean... In my day. Well, Clyde is ever so much younger than you. He's only 40. <laughs> well, how old do you think I am? 
You must be at least 42. What do you mean? I'm... I'll settle for that. <laughs> Why think about this older man when, when I'm available? But you're not available. You're married to Mrs. Harris. And now, if you'll excuse me, I must finish writing this letter to Clyde. Goodbye. Clyde, Clyde. The impossible has happened. Harris has been rebuffed. Oh, could I be losing my charm? No. <laughs> Poor kid must have astigmatism or something. Well, Phil, how did you do? Well, uh, well, practically had her in the boat, but she slipped the hook. <laughs> Losing your touch, huh, Curly? I guess you're not as seductive as you think you are. I am, too, and I'll prove it. It's just because I'm married. She's a nice kid, and she doesn't want to take me away from poor old Alice. <laughs> Look, I'll show you. Alice, all you've got to do is to go in and tell Margie that you've given me up. I and ain't I... gonna do it. <laughs> Honey, it's to help the girl and watch your grammar. <laughs> We're just pretending. If you tell her you're giving me up, she'll be amenable to my approach. She'll think that... Amenable! <laughs> well, it sounds crazy to me, but if you think it'll work, I'll try it. Good. Now, Remley, you go inside and keep Scotty busy so he doesn't bother. Right. And, Alice, all you have to do is to tell Margie that you're giving me up, and she'll take the cue. And the rest is going to be a cinch. Now, go ahead. Wait a minute, honey. Look. Leave the door ajar. I want to hear Marjorie pant when you tell her the news. Okay, dear. Hello, Marjorie. Hello, Mrs. Harris. What are you doing here? Well, I I have some news that I know will interest you, and I came to tell you. You see, I'm leaving Mr. Harris. A very wise move. How <laughs> the kids being subtle. Well, Marjorie, you don't understand. I'm giving Mr. Harris up so you can have him. What would I want with him? She doesn't want to appear anxious. <laughs> now, look, dear. You needn't pretend with me. I know you want him. But I don't want him. You can keep him. I don't want to keep him. I'm giving him to you. <laughs> I don't want him. I wish they wouldn't fight over me like that. <laughs> I'm not worth it. Marjorie, please take him. But I don't... Look. I'll make you a sporting proposition. You can have Mr. Harris and 13 points. <laughs> Don't palm him off on me. Why are you so anxious to get rid of him? I've outgrown him. That's why I'm giving him to you. I've outgrown him, too. Hear them dames talk, you'd think I was an old girdle. <laughs> Marjorie, why don't you take him? He's too old to make any trouble. He'll just lie around the house. No. He'll make a wonderful watchdog. He barks when strangers come in. I'm sorry, Mrs. Harris, but I already have a dog. But he ain't got a pedigree like mine. <laughs> well, Marjorie, if you're not interested, I guess I'll run along. Well, Phil, Marjorie won't even take you I know, I know, I know. I told you. Watchdog. I told you this wouldn't work. What we need is a nice boy her own age to take her mind off this other fellow. Phil. Phil, I know just the boy. Who? Julius. Julius? I'd rather see her go steady with Cecil the C6 Sea Serpent. <laughs> now, Julius, 
He's a nice boy, and he's just about her age. But, Alice, don't, don't you... Don't argue. Go call him and tell him to come over here. Oh, all right. Curly, I don't get it. Why did you call Julius to come over? Well, it was my idea. I thought we could use Julius to lure her away from the other fellow. Fine bait. Would be kinder to throw her a hunk of doped horse meat. <laughs> He's such a contrary kid. How'd you get him to come over? I appeal to his romantic side. I told him I want him to make love to a beautiful girl. And I certainly wish he'd hurry and come on... Well, it's about time you got here. Do you know what you're supposed to do? Sure. You told me over the phone that you want me to take a pretty blonde away from a no-good fortune hunter. That's right. Now get started. Okay. Step aside. Miss Faith, why want me and I'll rescue you from the clutching of this money-man group? <laughs> Alice ain't the girl. It's Mr. Scott's daughter. Oh, now you're after her, honey. It's not me. <laughs> There's another guy after her money, and we want oh, you to... Oh, Curly, what's the use? Marjorie won't even look at him. He's such an obnoxious little brat. As himself, yes. But I've got an idea. Now look, Julius, she likes my type. And I thought instead of being your usual repulsive character, that you could act like me. Oh, instead of being repulsive, you want me to be nauseating. <laughs> Never mind. I do this myself, but I'm a little old for Marjorie. But she loves my personality. She loves your personality? There's just one thing I want to know about this girl. What? How'd she get hurt? <laughs> Why should I get involved with this Daffy thing? Now, she's not Daffy. She's Mr. Scott's daughter, and she's a very nice girl. Please, Julia, do it for me. All right, Miss Fay, I'll do it for your sake. I'll... Julius, quiet. Here comes Marjorie. Now, remember, act just like me and you're a cinch. Okay. <clears throat> oh, Margie, hi. Uh, I want you to meet a young friend of ours. Uh, Miss Scott, this is Julius Abruzio. Hello, Julius. Oh, come with me to Alabama. Come and meet my dear old pappy. He's always boiled oh, so happy. And that's what I like about that sound. Yeah. <laughs> what the heck was that? Tell me I don't act like that. All right, I'll tell you you don't. But you do. <laughs> Marjorie, prepare yourself for a thrill. I'm taking you out tonight. Gee, you're so masterful. You ain't just beating your gums, Marjorie. <laughs> Mr. Crail, your fiancé. 
Oh, him. Daddy, I want to introduce you to a new boy I just met. This is Julius Abruzio. Julius? You mean you and Julius? You said it, Dad! <laughs> My son-in-law. It's just a question of time. <laughs> now, the first thing I'm going to do when I become vice president in charge of the Rexall radio program is to cut down on expenses. Now, just a minute, young man. Nobody asked you to change our radio program. I know a way we can break Mr. Harris's contract. I don't care what you know about... You do, my son? <laughs> into the library and talk this over. Hey, Mr. Scott, don't listen to him. Julius, what are you doing to me? Now, just what did you have in mind, my boy? Hey, Julius, now, Julius. when I see it, Pop, all we gotta do Julius. is prove that these two guys have no talent which shouldn't Julius. be hard. Keep talking, boy. I love Julius. your style. like Marjorie. Yeah, she's wonderful. Now, wait a minute. Don't be too hasty, little pal. Margie's not for you. Just because she happens to have money, she... Mr. Harris! Do you think I'm the kind of a person who'd sell my soul for money? Well, no, I... Do you I... think I'd bother my affections for mercenary gains? No, I... Do you think I'm making love to this girl just so I can get my hands on her money? No. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll be with me next week for more gems from the golden age of radio. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a wonderful weekend. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.